Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostics industry. I'm Amanda Peterson, news editor at MDDI, and today we're speaking with Dan Purvis, CEO and co-founder of Valentium, an engineering firm specializing in the design and manufacturing of therapeutic and diagnostic medical devices. I first had the pleasure of meeting Dan via Zoom last June when he shared with me the inspiring story about how Valentium became involved with the COVID-19 ventilator initiative known as Project V. It was apparent to me during that conversation that Dan is truly passionate about Valentium's mission to change lives for a better world. Now, that might sound trite, but if you've ever had a conversation with Dan about medtech, you'll know what I mean when I say this is a person who is doing what he was truly meant to do. So without further ado, let's talk medtech. Hi, Dan. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure, Amanda. Good to be here. Great. So I wanted to talk to you about some of the trends that you're seeing in engineering and design, uh, particularly for medical device startups. Uh, what, What trends are you noticing there? Yeah, so first of all, at Valentium, we do a lot of work with startups, and we have found that that startups are coming into the marketplace with unbelievable new technology and ideas coming out of universities, oftentimes medical research. And so uh, medical startups, medical device startups specifically, have got deep, deep physiological understanding of their mechanism of action, of the physiology of the of the implant and where it's going to be or the wearable and what it's going to affect. Uh, But when you get into device development from an FDA certification perspective and from a submissions perspective, from a commercialization perspective, uh, there are several different things you have to be aware of that are maybe less familiar to the average startup because these startups usually come out of some novel medical concept. And so there, there are really four or five key areas that are new oftentimes to startup companies. So one of them is the whole design history file and the way that that works with FDA. Another one is the idea of cybersecurity and protecting your device, especially if it's going to be connected in this wireless world that we have today. Another is design for testability so that you can verify that this device is right. And another is design for manufacturability, so you can design that this, you can assure that this device can be made at the price point that you need it to be. And then finally, the design for longevity, that you're using parts that will be around for years to come, because if you change a part, then you have to go through a process to get it resubmitted. Right. That makes sense. And uh, at what point in the process do startups usually reach out to you if they are planning on outsourcing their engineering? And, and I imagine if I imagine pretty early in the process, but I'm curious to hear uh, your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. We see all kinds. Uh, we see our favorite is very early on. Mm-hmm. So if you if you have just incorporated, you have an idea, you have proven science from from a lab, uh, that's the best time, even pre-fundraising. Uh, there have been numerous startups where we've had our capabilities and our name in their deck as they're presenting to investors. And increasingly, investors have seen our work and have worked with us in the past. And that helps lend some credibility to the fact that the commercialization process, which is very different than the medical process, uh, mm-hmm. will work. But then we've also seen the other side where there's a working prototype Uh, It does its thing, and yet it's not really manufacturable, or there's no design history file. 
And, and so we have to do DHF remediation where you have to essentially redesign, but you have to redesign with the documentation that FDA is looking for so you can show true design controls, risk analysis, et cetera. Wow. So they can really save a lot of time, uh, both for themselves and for you and in, in the process by reaching out early, early on. For sure. We, we've seen what we, we call a glorified science fair project, right? Where it's like, well, that's <laughs> wow. great that that works, but you're never going to put that on a human, right. at least not in this country. And so, uh, and that's a really difficult thing, especially when a lot of money has gone out the door to get to that place. Cause without good design controls and, uh, and, and design process, uh, you don't have anything to submit. Wow. I was wondering, uh, in the past year, there's been so many uh, challenges with COVID. And how does that impact um, the engineering and design of a new product, especially for startups? We've certainly seen in the startup world a, a slowing of investment, just because it's hard to make those connections, right? And mm-hmm. so um, we have numerous clients that are in the middle of a financing round, working to get to the the end of their financing round. And it's just much slower going when you can't go have that FaceTime with an investor. Uh, we also find that one of the things is really good about startups working with an outsourced engineering developer is that uh, you can have that startup executive or that startup team on site at the developer seeing it firsthand. Once again, that's kind of difficult, especially most of our staff, uh, we've got 75 on staff and we, we encourage them to work at home if they possibly can. And so uh, it's just harder to get some of that shoulder rubbing that happens. And in that process of shoulder rubbing, that's how the startup starts to learn more about uh, the process of design controls and design history files that's necessary for FDA uh, but on the other hand, you know, just like we're talking today on the Zoom, there's lots and lots mm-hmm. of Zoom meetings that are happening. As long as you're willing to deal with the occasional dog walking through the background, <laughs> like happens in my house all the time, or mm-hmm. you know, a, a kid yelling or whatever. I mean, it, it happens, and we adjust. And in a lot of ways, we see that there is even more productivity out of our developers because they don't have the distractions of a commute or right. some of these other things that happen in the world of the past. That makes a lot of sense. What about when it comes to, uh, you know, human factors design and uh, in trying to design for um, human users and uh, user friendliness, um, not being able to, are there challenges involved with not being able to go to sites like you normally would and observe and get feedback um, from, from potential users? Yeah, absolutely. Just to review, human factors engineering is the the whole front end of making sure that this product, whether it's visually looked at or inserted or held or interacted with tactily, that it works intuitively in a way that a user would expect. And you can have a lot of problems if you haven't gone through that process, because what you think is a design engineer is intuitive Uh, Mm -hmm. may not be to a caregiver or a patient or an elderly person or a young child or or any of the above. And so suddenly if you have misuse due to human factors that just what you think are clear are not clear, uh, it's really important to go through that process. And so that's a series of formative studies and then a summative study. And we like to say that a summative study is just a formative study that went really well, right? So right. Uh, you think you think you're at summative study and you find more stuff and guess what? You have another formative study, but 
there's a lot of statistical work that goes into sample size based on what's going on with the risk associated with your product as well as the design of your product. And then you have to find those people. And so working through COVID protocols, uh, lots of industries are having to do that, right? Um, right? Whether it be the Chick-fil-A where you figure out a way to now drive through and get all your food through the app and it's handed to you in a bucket, or you mm -hmm. find a way to get patients and caregivers in a room, socially distanced with masks, with protocol, uh, you still have to go through that process to assure that, that your design is going to be usable in the way that you intended it for it to be. Right. So what are some lessons learned over the past year that could be beneficial to our engineering audience? Yeah. So first and foremost, uh, your design history file when I first heard that concept back in the day, I went design history file. What is that? Is that just a big word mm -hmm. document or, you know, <laughs> the, the file, think of it more like a file cabinet, but not in today's world. It's essentially right. a collection of, of documents. And that, that collection of documents describes the entire design process for your product. And so you need to have that in a format that FDA is expecting to see. And that involves design inputs. So your requirements and your risk analysis, your design outputs, the way that you actually accomplished uh, those inputs and, and met those requirements and alleviated those risks. And then traceability that shows that as you went through verification and validation of your, of your product, that you could show that each of these initial requirements and risk points have been handled by different outputs in your process. And then all of that, we say it all the time here at Valentium, if it's not signed off, it didn't happen. And so if you wrote some code and then you had a code review and, and I said, well, yeah, Amanda took a look at my code. And go, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Where's the code review report? Oh, I don't think we did that. Okay, well, then yeah. it didn't happen. <laughs> you know, and so, right. um, so that's the one thing is just be aware that you have to have a design history file as you submit for a 510K or a PMA. But then increasingly, uh, with the pre-market guidance on cybersecurity, uh, there, there's a whole new emphasis at FDA on cybersecurity that is really, really important for your submission. And we saw this uh, in different ways throughout history. So uh, back uh, many, many years ago, risk analysis was the big hot button. It's like you have to mm -hmm. have risk management, you have to have risk analysis and then risk mitigation. And then after the risk mitigation, you reanalyze to make sure that your, your post-mitigation risk is acceptable and you have to show that solid process. Uh, think of cybersecurity as similar to risk analysis and risk management, uh, but with risk management, you've got severity and likelihood, right? A lot of your work mm -hmm. is around this grid of how severe would this be to a patient if this went wrong and what is the likelihood that it could go wrong? And you can play that game it's extremely severe, but we've mitigated to the point that it's almost completely unlikely. Or it is likely, but it's not really going to do anything. It's just going to annoy the customer, something like mm -hmm. that. With cybersecurity, likelihood is always one. And that's where a lot of risk management people go, wait, wait, what do you mean? How can it always be one? And it's akin to if you have a hole in your backyard fence, your dog will eventually find it, right? <laughs> and so True. Yeah. you have a vulnerability in your design it will eventually be sniffed out and used for nefarious purposes. And that's the challenge is that in the cybersecurity world of today, it's no longer engineering work where you're trying to beat the physical sciences into submission and turn a product into something that works biologically. Now you're man against man. You've got somebody either for, for financial gain or for a hobby or for 
terror or for nation state or for whatever reason, trying to take over your device for some reason, you've got to be able to defend against that. And you have to assume mm-hmm. only severities, not severities and likelihoods. And so we've seen a lot of interest in the last year in cybersecurity from a vulnerability analysis and then vulnerability uh, reduction perspective. Interesting. Um, and that actually, uh, it, on a related note, uh, what challenges are there around when you're talking about uh, wireless devices and connectivity? Um, what kind of challenges does that bring t- uh, for interoperability? How do you design a medical device with, you know, assuming that your the intended lifespan is, is 10, 20 years? Mm-hmm. How do you do that from, uh, you know, uh, a standpoint of keeping cybersecurity in mind and all the other things that you have to focus on when designing a device. You bet. You bet. So first and foremost, uh, the consumer is king. The marketplace will reign, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, me, like any other patient, I don't want to carry a whole armload of different device interfaces. I have a device interface and I like it. It's my iPhone and I use it all Mm -hmm. the time, right? And so, um, so there's challenge one is... I have the iPhone 11 Pro and you may have something different, right? You may have an Android device, you may have an iPhone, you may have a different version, you may have you may or may not have upgraded the operating system when they asked you to. Right. So you've got this now this challenge that in the mobile world is a challenge, but if an app doesn't work, then maybe you don't get to know the weather right now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as opposed to now if the app doesn't work, it's not managing your blood glucose level, right? And so right. Um, interoperability across devices and across versions of software on those devices is a huge concern and something that has to be engineered around. And so what you end up seeing is something around the idea of whitelisting devices. So here are the devices we have tested, and hence here are the devices that we know work, and here are the devices that are approved to be used. So, So that's one whole issue. But then there's this idea that we've come to get used to, right? That when I get into my car. I want my audible books to work on my car. And I want to be able to say, Hey Siri, call somebody and it will happen. And like, and it happens right out of your car. And why is that? Because my car talks BLE to hang on. I just woke up Siri. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My car talks BLE to my phone. And so increasingly now that device that's being worn by me, that is monitoring some kind of physiological parameter or that device that's being implanted into me that is monitoring or sourcing some kind of electrical energy to accomplish a therapy, I want that device to talk to my phone. And so that's great. But now when that device is talking to your phone, there's now a wireless conduit of information going through BLE, which is a standard and open protocol Mm -hmm. uh, that could be sniffed, that could be taken over, that could be intercepted, that could be affected uh, for all kinds of different reasons. And so now you have not only interoperability issues with the fact that these different phones come in all shapes and sizes and all different types of operating systems and versions, but also we're all talking a public standard that then has to be encrypted. Uh, we, We like to talk about shared secrets and known secrets and keying. And so at manufacture, you have to put share, you have to put secrets into that device that only that device knows so that when you're querying it, you can ask questions. And uh, it's much akin to what happens when you have a new computer dialing into your bank, right? They ask you like, 
where was the location of your honeymoon or something like that. Right. It's, mm-hmm. But this is the digital version because it's two devices talking to each other. But then you can encrypt that data all the way through from the implanted or the wearable device all the way out through the Wi-Fi into the mobile phone and then potentially out into the cloud and beyond. And, and we talk a lot then about making sure that it's not just data in motion that's being encrypted, but it's also data at rest that's being encrypted. Because uh, now that I've got software on my mobile phone, that's another attack surface that you can go in and attempt to, to get this biological information. It could be uh, treatment information. It could be physiological information. It could be dosage information, or it could just be simply patient health information, which once again, represents another opportunity uh, to to have fines and 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 loss of privacy and you know with with GDPR coming out of Europe there's a lot of concern and there should be around PHI how do you make sure that patient health information is being protected yeah another uh, a trend that's not too um, far from talking about wireless uh, devices and connectivity um, of course is wearables and I wondered what you're seeing there as far as um, engineering trends or design trends or challenges um, when it comes to wearables for medical device use. Sure. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a fundamental difference between an implant and a wearable. And the challenge there is patient compliance. Like when you insert a neurostimulator into someone or a pacemaker into someone, you don't have to worry about them keeping their pacemaker working because it's inserted into them, right? And so mm-hmm. um, when a wearable is part of a therapy system, now just like a pharmaceutical where you have to remember to take it, a wearable, you have to remember to wear it. Uh, you have to make sure that uh, you're wearing it in the proper configuration. Uh, if it's if it's attached with adhesives, what are the places I could put it on the body because I want to move it around so I don't damage the skin by wearing it over and over in the same spot. Um, and then you get into the issue of, is this wearable a one-time use? Is this wearable a permanent item that I'm going to use over and over again, reusable, but then I'm just going to change out the way that it's attached? Uh, th- there are just a lot of different design constraints that as a design engineer in a young startup, you have to figure out how do I best, A, serve the, serve the patient and, and get my therapy to them to help them, B, get it done in a way that is uh, going to make it through FDA, C, get it done in a way that is going to make it through reimbursement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see sometimes that, that startups haven't thought through that. They've thought a lot about getting their device approved. They haven't thought so much about how they're going to get it paid for. And, and without a clear plan to reimbursement, uh, that's that's a pretty tough deal as well. And so um, wearables of the future are capable of doing many more things than one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we we saw that one of one of the clients we've worked with in the past is Ventec Life Systems. They have a a five in one ventilator called the Voxin because it does ventilation. It does oxygen delivery. It makes its own oxygen out of the air. It does cough assist. It does suction, and it's a nebulizer. That's V-O-C-S-N. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they had to come up with a new reimbursement code for that, right? Because it does more things than a ventilator. There, mm-hmm. There's a ventilator reimbursement code already, and there's an oxygen delivery code already, but there wasn't a five-in-one because that five-in-one system didn't exist. And so as you get into more wearable technologies, can you fit into old reimbursement codes or not? 
and, and we're involved in a wearable project right now where half of the design challenge is making sure that we get the physiological parameters necessary to hit a reimbursement code. Not because they're physiologically necessary to get the diagnosis and the monitoring that we need, mm-hmm. but in order to get reimbursed, you have to read extra parameters that, while not necessary physiologically, are necessary from a business perspective. Absolutely. And from a, you know, something investors like to see um, thought out in, in advance as well. So, um, well, I think that you've answered all of the specific questions that I had. Um, I've certainly learned a lot. I think our audience hopefully has too. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to add or anything that you'd like um, our audience to know about Valentium and, and the services you offer or how to get a hold of you if they have additional questions? Sure, sure. Let me start with a couple of things to add, and then I'll tell you a little bit about Valentium. So okay. uh, first, first and foremost, on the things to add, uh, your requirements as a startup are, are the absolute key. And so taking your time on requirements and, and being ruthless, is this requirement really necessary? Um, we see requirements creep. We see um, conflicting requirements, and we see uh, ineffective requirements that aren't very well measurable, which make it difficult to design for traceability. Um, So getting to requirements where it's like, I want the simplest device that I can possibly design through this requirements process that will still accomplish the task. Because once you get a device approved into the market, there is no better feedback than a user, a real live user, right? Not mm-hmm. not somebody that you paid for for a formative or summative study or mm-hmm. not a research institution that's going to use your device either as a paid favor or as a favor or because they're interested in the science, but like actual patients putting it on their actual bodies. And so right. uh, we like to say and you've heard it in the marketplace over and over again, you want a minimally viable product, but you want that minimally viable product in an approved manner. And so writing those requirements uh, at the level of detail necessary, but without any extra requirements is really, really critical. And uh, we find that the startups that get that right, the rest of it uh, tends to flow right on through the project. So yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Valentium. So We started eight years ago as a design and development house, uh, and now we have grown to be a design, development, manufacturing, and test house. So we have the capability of taking a startup uh, right through the design process, through approval, manufacturing their early devices, manufacturing their commercial devices, and then testing those devices as well. And we identified early on in our history nine key areas to medical device development. They're human factors, cybersecurity, testing and test systems to assure that they're right, electrical, firmware, cloud, mobile, mechanical, the design that holds it all together, the actual physical product, and then systems engineering that ties all this together, the risk management, the requirements, the design controls, et cetera. And so it was our goal from early on at Valentium to to find subject matter experts, world leaders in each of those nine areas, and then staff out underneath them. And we've done that. We've got 75 on staff. We continue to grow extremely rapidly. And uh, we we make it a business to make startups successful and then to get them to market as quickly and as hopefully as easily as possible in a way that is uh, that treats the FDA truly as a partner, not, not as an mm-hmm. adversary. And so um, we believe at Valentium that we exist to change lives for a better world. Uh, it's not for profit. Profit does happen as a result of that. And it's necessary Mm -hmm. because that's the air that companies breathe. 
mm-hmm. but we do this to change lives. And so to be involved with just cutting edge, near sci-fi like projects that are changing the face of medical device right before us mm-hmm. has just been extremely rewarding. And that's what we live to do. Great. Well, thank you so much. And and uh, just one one thing I don't think you mentioned is just how, um, you know, what's the best way to reach out to Volentium if, yeah. if someone has a question or wants to uh, pursue a possible collaboration. Sure. It certainly makes sense. First of all, for me to mention that we have a cybersecurity book that was an Amazon bestseller. Uh, it's okay. the, it was the cybersecurity book of the year and an engineering bestseller on Amazon called cool. Embedded, Embedded Cybersecurity for Medical Device Designers. And so uh, there's a companion three course set that goes along with that. So you could become a certified embedded cybersecurity developer for MedDevice. And uh, so eager to help you if you're trying to wade into cybersecurity, eager to do that alongside you. And then if you want to email us, you can email us at nextstep at valentium.com, which essentially takes the next step towards getting your device designed and built. That's N-E-X-T-S-T-E-P at valentium.com. And just real quick around Valentium. Valentium is three words. People ask me this from time to time. It's velocity, momentum, And Ingenium is the Latin word for talent. And the idea Mm -hmm. behind our work is we try to hire the best and brightest engineers and then do things very quickly, but in in an accurate way for you. Uh, So email us at nextstep at valentium.com. Come and find us at valentium.com and you'll find that same link on our website or sign up for our next class and we'll, we'll teach you some cybersecurity.